Glenn Kilmans, welcome to Show Studio. I'm going to be posing questions that have been sent in from across the globe, from your fans, people who admired your work. And we've also got some questions from some of your friends, peers, people who've worked with you and people who've admired your work. Um, the first question is going to be from me. It's the only question that's actually mine. Firstly, congratulations on your Tate exhibition. Thank you. It's fantastic. Um, when visiting it and also reading a lot of the discussion and commentary around it, one of the things that struck me was how a lot of people responded to it as if it was offering an outsider perspective and they responded a lot to the challenges that you made to the establishment, particularly because of the political commentary within the show. And I was looking at that, but I was also considering the well-reported dominance of sort of white male artists within exhibitions and arts institutions such as the Tate. And to many, you know, as a well-established, successful photographer and a white male, you are seen as part of the establishment. And I wondered if that was something you were aware of when you were putting the exhibition together, and if you do see yourself as offering an alternative sort of outsider voice within the context of that, and if so, how? Big question. <laughs> a light question to begin with. Yes. Um, well, I'm, yeah, I am aware that I'm, of course, uh, um, not an outsider. Um, on the other hand, I've, um, I've had, um, you know, I grew up um, being gay, so mm -hmm. that gives you always a different perspective. Sure. Still, it, it, I'm also white male, so I never had like a, a institutional racism or institutional um, um, disadvantages uh, put upon me. Um, but uh, I guess I've because I've seen the world and I'm seeing the world somehow also with a different eye, mm -hmm. um, I'm, I've always been aware of um, um, other people's uh, struggles or that, that not everything looks the same from all different angles, I guess. Sure. That's, uh, and, uh, and I'm not trying to make a complete picture of anything in my work. Mm -hmm. um, um, but... Uh, there is also it's also not a coincidence that there is like a say like a the hand uh, a hand raised uh, from a photograph uh, from a Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. demonstration. Um, it's just noting it. It is giving it a space, a space. Um, but not claiming that I speak for the whole movement or um, anything more. Or like a, there's this uh, banner from. A, a queer demonstration in Berlin, like an alternative gay pride demonstration, um, which reminded people, well, it's nice here, but have you ever been to Kyrgyzstan? Mm. You know, and I like to use that photograph in almost every major exhibition, just to give space to that thought um, mm. that even though everything is not perfect here, um, but let's think about people in, for example, Kyrgyzstan, like uh, LGBT people exactly. there. Someone actually asked a question that relates to this. You talked about being a gay man and, and those representations in your work. It was a, a question submitted by a, a show studio viewer. They didn't leave their name, but they said in the current political and social climate, how important is visible queerness to you and how does this reflect in the work you've been producing? Um, well, I've, I've, um, I've been interested in a um, pansexual um, approach uh, to the body, um, to sexuality, that it is not um, um, like, like that. I, I never wanted to be defined 
um, as a gay artist making gay art. Um, so there's always been men and women and a playful interaction of the genders, uh, or either the same gender or male and female. Mm. And, um, and of course, there's been a lot of discussion about what the term queer means. Mm. And um, increasingly, there are also heterosexual people that self-identify as queer. It's queer. So it's a more of a state of mind almost. Um, but it can't be discussed away either as, oh, we're all just queer, just like, you know, like the word has a certain charge. And, mm -hmm. um, and um, um, it's funny, in German, queer, queer, um, it means um, from the side, not like at an angle, mm. um, and and I guess that is what queer always should be. Should right? be it should yeah. challenge a certainty um, and a sort of single reading yes. of the world, and that um, I like to to keep present in my work. Mm. And um, um, but the main thing is I remember again and again is uh, uh, that we shouldn't be afraid of our bodies mm -hmm. and we shouldn't be um, dominated by the fashion industry by the by the in, by industry um, to that um, to control our body beyond what is necessary or what is good for us and 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 to not be afraid and that's why I uh, included that photograph of uh, buttocks and balls um, mm -hmm. in a vast size <laughs> yeah. in the exhibition, no? because there's nothing scandalous about it. Right? Every, I mean, half mankind looks like this. Yeah. It's just a... Uh, <laughs> it's uh, not a taboo, really, is it? <laughs> no, no, it's just a um, um, rarer perspective <laughs> of a man. But it is, um, I mean, everybody looks like that. And, uh, and so I like it when it's uh, not obviously scandalizing, but uh, but the benignness is almost what's shocking about it. That's interesting. And you talk a lot about kind of Sorry. not being too... Are you doing the big reveal? I'm doing the reveal. <laughs> well, while you're doing the big reveal, I'll ask the next question, <laughs> um, which came in from someone who you've shot um, and who I think is a, is a friend of yours. Um, which is Kate Moss, and she asked, what does freedom mean to you? You know, I haven't seen her, I think, well, like, like the photographs were 21, 21 years, years ago. ago, and um, not sure when I saw her last, uh, <laughs> if this, if in this century, but I hope, <laughs> I'd love to see her again. Uh, can you do that? <laughs> um, what does freedom what mean does to freedom me? What does freedom mean to you? Thank you. Um, it's been, I mean, it wasn't fought for by me, um, but it wasn't granted, but it was fought for by others, mm. you know, that I can live um, uh, in freedom is the result of other people putting their ass on the line mm. um, and um, doing embarrassing things, doing challenging sh things, mm. you know, like it's, it's um, and it does, and I don't just mean gay liberation, I mean uh, the French Revolution. Mm. You know, some people rose up in France 250 years ago and stopped a, um, a corrupt system, mm. an, an oppressive system, 
And I'm just always aware that what we enjoy here is the result of history of other people. Of other people. And, yeah. and it's our duty to protect that. That's interesting. You know, like it's, um, people just take everything for granted now. Mm. And, um, and um, people have to be aware that what we enjoy um, is fragile because there are always people pushing against it. Mm. You know, like fundamentalists, um, far-right people, extreme capitalists, they all push against the space that we enjoy. Mm. So would you... This actually it relates to a question that was, was asked by Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop Boys. Mm. He asked you, and it relates to the, some of the work that you've done in, in, um, in pushing back, and he said, do you think it's possible to influence the anti-Europe pro-nationalist voters through your activist artworks, or are you preaching to the converted, and can artists affect the outcome of the debate? Um, that is an interesting one, um, and there is some thing true to that fundamental observation and that mm. preaching to the converted thing, but um, one also has to remember that um, uh, political activism and political art or um, 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 artwork is actually also something that is made to encourage and keep the spirit of those um, of your comrades, you know, yes. of, of like-minded people, um, and um, you know, to reach the ones most opposite to your view is the hardest. Mm -hmm. But if you if you think of it more as like a, um, a process of osmosis, I see. Um, um, the artwork, I think, and art is a powerful thing, mm -hmm. and you only have to look at. Um, the social advances in the um, 60s, 70s, 80s, they all had to do with art, with mm. film and thinking of film, music um, as art mm. and graphic design, I mean, um, fashion, they all pushed. pushed. Um, so in the end, I mean, art is only another word for culture and, um, and all the political strife is really about it's, it's, cult, it's called culture wars, no? mm. what is acceptable or not. And so aesthetics and politics are interlinked. Mm. This relates to that sort of the conversation about sort of the power of art and the way art can communicate. So Ian Green, who's CEO of the Terence Higgins Trust, asked, he said that you've used your work to highlight issues around HIV stigma. And what role do you think artists have in influencing hearts and minds on important issues? Yeah, like, um, on the one hand, what I just said, yes, art um, has a significant role. It is actually not marginal, mm. and, um, and those in power are aware, even though they are often not that cultured or that interested in art, mm. uh, they somehow sense that um, that is what makes society. Mm. You know, like, a society without culture is unthinkable, you know, and... Uh, um, but on the other hand, I also got asked quite a bit in the past year, oh, should artists be more political? Mm. And, um, and I think like, like this question implies that um, artists uh, should, by nature, be more political than a carpenter or a, um, a dentist. Mm. And, uh, and I think uh, uh, the great 
quality of art, almost the defining quality of art, is um, that it is useless. That by default it, it doesn't have to sell anything, it doesn't have to illustrate anything, um, it can just be. Mm. And that freedom uh, must be fundamental. So I don't want to give any artist a bad conscience, like, oh, you haven't uh, uh, worked against Brexit, or you're not doing an anti-racist uh, awareness campaign. Uh, it is not for everyone to do that with their work, but I think what we all and everybody um, have now is a duty to um, um, realize that this is a unique time. No? Old people, that, not unique, I mean not unique in history, mm. um, but um, old, quite a bit older people said to me this, they haven't experienced anything like it um, in their lifetime. No? This mm. is an emergency and people have to wake up and get involved mm. and not just post something on Facebook. Yeah, this relates actually to a question that was asked by Lucy Moore, who runs Clare and Books, and I know someone who you work with. And that notion of posting, she said, you know, what is the best way to communicate social and political ideas with nuance and wisdom now that attention spans are so short? So obviously referring to the fact that people are sort of consuming so much imagery and scrolling through things so quickly. Um, I mean, the... Um, the hardest thing is uh, to speak, um, I mean, to really sit down uh, with a family member and, and talk for half an hour or an hour about a subject you're uh, not so easy about. Mm. I mean, I find that, I realize like it's so easy to, um, I mean, it's not super easy, but it is much easier to write like a, a political thought and post it, but to actually uh, confront a cabbie who has just made a slightly racist remark mm. and actually draw him into a conversation um, I find like really cringing and hard yeah. and ooh and uh, um, and that's really what we have to do no? we mm. have to speak um, we have to defend uh, um, um, yeah the well not defend we have to use our freedom to speak mm. and uh, and um, I think the biggest um, problem is like the much described city countryside divide or in America the coast versus the mainland mm. USA and um, and that can only be bridged by actual conversations mm. Mm. someone asked a question that relates to this it was a it was a, a show studio viewer um, Keanu Johansson from Canada we had lots of people from all over the world sending questions mm. And they said, you, you've mentioned before that people off, you, you know, hope that people see the world differently because of your pictures and that real success is not the price that your pictures might go for, but the effect they have on other humans to see something with open eyes. And they've asked, has there been a certain image you feel has done this more than others? Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are obvious... Um, um, Cases like, I mean, say like Lutz and Alex sitting in the trees is mm. probably one of, or maybe the most uh, known picture of mine, uh, um, and uh, and it came from exactly that spirit of um, um, a playful togetherness of genders, mm. a playful exploration of the body, just like sitting naked in trees. Uh, it's like it looks like. Uh, Reportage, mm. um, but of course it was a 
um, stage scenario, um, and I think that's something that I used uh, um, a language, um, the language of authenticity, which isn't uh, betraying the viewer, because you know, like we really did frolic around in the park, <laughs> and um, but um, but it uh, so in that moment it did happen. Mm. Uh, but also, I like to make things look real as if they well as if they have happened mm. uh, rather than make them look um, particularly staged um, um, and so when things look easy they are also believable mm. Mm. and um, and so I um, have tried to make my work um, not look complicated mm. um, and uh, portray certain modes of communication, of being in your body, um, um, look matter-of-fact, because the, mo the moment it looks matter-of-fact, then, well, that is normality. And um, interestingly, even though I never set out to document my times in the 90s, mm. you know, like my first book that came out in 95, um, uh, was immediately seen as like a document of the yeah. time, and this is the generation uh, he's photographed. Uh, but of course, just like when you look around in the, uh, if you, if we time warped into 1968 and looked at what the streets looked like, of course they didn't look like there were there were hippies everywhere. Yeah, it looked probably very very different. But what we understand as the spirit of a time is actually um, the aspirations and the dreams and, and the, which is only usually realized by a few people. Mm. Um, and again, that is the power of art mm. also to describe but influence and almost historically rewrite history <laughs> because uh, it is not a lie, it is authentic. Uh, mm. There's a question that was asked by Simon Baker, who's the photography curator at oh. the Tate, um, and it relates actually to this. He said, is seductive beauty a problem for political content? Mm. Snappy question. Yeah, there, um, I mean, there was um, uh, a German socialist uh, magazine, uh, which still exists, called Konkret. Um, and in the 70s, um, they um, put naked women on the cover um, just to get to sell more copies, to mm. spread the message. Um, so that, <laughs> that is a very seductive uh, um, way which uh, I guess today wouldn't be considered that <laughs> progressive correct. Uh, but um, no, there is, there is, there is a, um, um, there is, I don't know if there's a problem, but at least if, you're in, if you are involved in the business of representation, of representing mm. humans, um, you have to ask yourself, um, what does that actually do and what does it mean? And that um, I did um, fairly early on, um, after the first success in the early 90s, mid-90s, I questioned, like, what is this proliferation of um, pictures of young people mm. actually doing? Mm. And, um, and who are we looking at? Because by the end of the 90s, there was um, an omnipresence of pictures of cool young people sort of doing nothing mm. um, or um, which I would in the early 90s would have said resting in themselves because back then I didn't see 
any pictures of serious young people, mm. and I wanted to fill that gap. Um, but um, but that had been quickly co-opted, and there's also um, and and turned into also commercial language. Yeah. Um, but um, within the choices of who you photograph, because you're always creating already a new catalog of aesthetics of what is what you think is desirable and and um, but I am also attracted to particular um, um, colors to particular um, um, textures, fabrics, you know, like there, there are things I like, and so that's what I talk about as well, so mm. I'm not trying to be um, completely neutral because you can't do that either. No? But, but the question of like why represent, like why photograph people all the time, no? because it's constantly a normative, it, it's a normative activity mm. as a whole. No? Mm. And um, um, it's, uh, yeah, so this, in, the constant picture production is um, at least um, worth questioning. Worth and questioning, and yeah. that, that was behind uh, myself at the end of the 90s, actually, uh, um, changing um, my work and, and making pictures without camera. Because mm. I wanted to make exhibitions. I wanted to continue uh, showing pictures, uh, but the pictures suddenly didn't show a person. Or yeah, it's interesting, you kind of talk about the spirit of the times, and we got a question from, she just left her name as Eva in London, and she's asked, do you think you would be successful with your work if you were starting out in these times? Mm. Um, I mean, I think um, there is an incredible urgency today. There's a lot to be said, and, and, um, and I think... Um, it's not necessarily being said enough in certain fields. Um, you know, like music, for example, doesn't really represent the calamity that we're in. Mm. Um, there were very few musicians that dared to speak out against Brexit. Mm. Um, like, I don't know, you know, like why could super, super top stars make really um, um, abrasive, um, political comments at the height of their career in the 60s, 70s, mm. um, and why can't they do that today? Yeah, um, and um, um, so, what was the question? She asked if you would be successful today. So, I, go, I guess it's kind of relating to whether actually, if you were making, if you were trying to start out making the work that you're making, would it be a success? You know, would you in these times? Well, I would. would I mean, like the, um, um, I, I have always approached my work um, from the question, what is missing? Mm, um, and, um, um, and I've always felt like, well, you can't like uh, overtake your idols or what you admire. Mm. You know, you have to come in from the side, uh, from like what is not there already, no? because what's there already is, you know, it is there because it made its space and, uh, and uh, and is good, um, or is shit. No, like you <laughs> have to make work in comment, in commentary, and contrary to what you think is shit. Yeah. Um, um, so the question, what's missing? 
and I can't answer that for you, but I think uh, I would certainly feel um, I want to contribute to what's going on, and that is, I think, something that young people, young artists, uh, um, in general, be they photographers or, or um, any other medium, they, they think that their desire to express themselves is already a worth, a, a value in itself. Mm -hmm. But um, express ourselves, we all want to do. Yeah. Um, it's what you have to contribute to the discussion. That's what matters. No? Mm -hmm. and, and so... Uh, um, um, and given that, I mean, it is very difficult today. There is like, like for example, music is like, it's a crazy system. No? There's yeah. no money in music. It's it's um, it's insane. Um, so that's not a fair situation. Mm. And you can't say, oh, there's great opportunities. It's just like the 80s. Uh, um, no, no. Um, but in general. Um, quality and somebody who has something to say uh, will um, get through. And I know from my gallery, gallery, gallerist friends, mm -hmm. um, people are constantly looking for a genuine, New honest voice uh, that wants to contribute something and not just be successful. Sure. If you have something to say, you will, I think, um, you can get through, even though it seems so oversaturated now. And um, one last thing, like um, um, like in 1986, you could have thought, you know, like everything's been done in pop and cult pop culture. You know, like punk is was the most extreme thing. Like, like you know, like um, and then Acid House came around the corner, Actually, and yeah. techno happened, and uh, and. So there's to say like, oh, everything's been done and it's so difficult and they had it so good in the 90s. Uh, um, there's always something new. That's um, you use the word shit quite a lot there. And Hari Neff, the model who you've, um, you've used in your work, she said that you, she said, you once told me nice is the little sister of shit. How has that phrase manifested in your work? <laughs> I really did my digging. Oh, yes. <laughs> that is, I have to quote, that it comes from uh, my friend Karl Kolbitz. Um, um, I think he said it for the f to me for the first time. And uh, Well, it's just like this uh, random use of the word nice. And uh, it's... Uh, I mean, I don't want everything to be... I, I'm not interested in the radical... Mm. As opposed to nice, no, like, but, uh, but um, you know, and that, because it is important to also get comfort from things, mm. no? like it's, it's uh, um, but uh, nice is the thing. It's it's sort of indifferent, passive in a way, passive and yeah. and and, uh, and without uh, conviction, mm. and uh, so you don't think you're nice. Um, I, I don't know. Well, yeah, I, I, yes. I mean, of course I want to be nice, but when it's nice, or, oh, that's nice. You know? <laughs> There's a difference. There's there a is difference. a difference. Um, I want to, I, I was quite happy, actually, that a lot well, of It's quite touching that all these people have I know, uh, I told you, it's a reply. This is your life. I mean, if, if, <laughs> <laughs> hello. 
Um, this is taking a slightly different tack, but I had a question from a girl called Holly, who's in Bournemouth, and she said, Nick Knight also studied in Bournemouth, as you did. I was wondering whether the place has had any impact on your work and how your time there has shaped your practice, if at all. We got a lot of questions from people from Bournemouth, which I thought was really nice. <laughs> really? So, yeah. Actually, I was uh, um, back there at the college last month uh, for the first time in years and gave a talk. It was very... Um, Nice to be back and uh, nice, very nice to very be back. Nice indeed. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't shit to be back. It was really good to be back. And uh, um, I, uh, uh, I really liked. Um, you know, I had lived in Hamburg the mm. three years before in the red light district in St. Pauli and had a experienced the acid house early techno years there and uh, had a pretty wild time uh, and so I was kind of longing for a quiet seaside uh, um, and experience so like this idea of rainy afternoons on the pier uh, drinking you wanted something tea nice. I wanted <laughs> and the, I, I romanticized that and I uh, I uh, liked the idea and uh, and staying put not running off to London all the time, mm. uh, every weekend, which a lot of the foreign students did. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I think um, that was really informative to stay um, and spend as much time with the fellow students um, and not look already for outside um, activities. Mm. Um, you know, because the time when you're a student um, is kind of the only time where you're not competitive uh, yeah. with people of your same profession. Mm or your, your same vocation. I mean, of course, I'm not competitive. Uh, when, you know, when I meet a fellow artist, I don't think you're a competitor. <laughs> but uh, you do talk differently, whereas in college, you are just, there's a, um, an equality there mm. um, that, um, that allows you to be open. That's interesting. Even though it doesn't happen. Not everybody opens up, but the general setting is there to the be open. The, the opportunity... Yeah is there to be open and to talk about your weaknesses and your fears. And, uh, and that, um, I felt, was important. important, yes. We've got a question from someone called Toby, who said, we collaborated together in 1990 on uniforms at Bournemouth College of Art and Design. Um, Nick Knight was already a household name in fashion photography and only a few years out of Bournemouth himself. As an art student holding a camera, did you ever envisage back then how your career would unfold as a fine artist? I, um, I did have a sense of uh, purpose, I guess. I always had a sense of I, I am doing this uh, for a reason. You know, I'm not doing this to be successful. Mm. Um, I want to be, I want to contribute. I want to go to places that I myself read, for example, back then ID, mm. uh, or galleries that I went to. Um, I wanted to be, you know, I, I loved art, mm. and that's why I wanted to be in art. Mm. Um, and, uh, oh yeah, that's what I was saying with, about this, like, People wanting to express themselves and uh, and only really thinking about their own work, mm. but it's so important to think about other art, mm. uh, you know, other photographers, and uh, um, because that is the only reference that um, uh, makes what you do possible. Totally, yeah. um, and uh, the um, my 
great uh, beloved teacher from Bonn, Mr. Tony Maestri, he uh, always said to us, there's no art outside of that window, meaning like there is no culture in nature. No? Like mm -hmm. the, the only um, reference is your dead or older fellow artists. Mm -hmm. um, and they are your friends and you need to study them because without them you wouldn't be speaking the, the language that you're speaking. We had a lot um, of questions actually about that, so I'll attribute them to lots of people where they asked about the people, the artists or photographers who had had the most influence on your work. And it's, it's, a kind of, it's an obvious question in a way, but are there people who you can still, to this day, remember seeing one of their works or interacting with a, a book about them or something and it, had a sort of, it was a turning point in mm. a way? Um, I, um, strangely, yeah, like the, the, maybe the first time that I felt the power of art was uh, as a child, I must have been like eight or nine, um, in, um, in Zurich, in Switzerland, uh, um, there is a church that has five uh, Marc Chagall windows. I mean, now I'm not a huge Chagall fan, but uh, <laughs> back then they so touched me and I, um, I made such a fuss for my parents to buy me like an oversized postcard of them. So like, like this, that art means something. Uh, um, I had key moments uh, like that um, throughout my teens and, uh, and, uh, and then I had similar moments where I, uh, I held the Blue Monday cover uh, by New Order, designed mm -hmm. by Peter, Peter Saville, in my hand, and uh, and thought this is a work of art. This and, and it shook me, and it like this is something I relate to. And and in the same way, um, the I grew up since 1984. Since I was 15, I went to the Cologne train station um, once a month to buy a copy of ID mm. and, um, and the pictures of our host, uh, Nick uh, Knight. I mean, they, um, left a huge impact, uh, um, in encouragement, no? because our styles are vastly different, no? but, mm. uh, but, um, I mean, the whole, um, magazine in, in its spirit back then, in its DIY non-commercial spirit, um, was super, Super important, uh, important. Uh, but um, but the um, the presence really of the art museums in the Rhineland, in, uh, where I saw Sigmar Polke and Gerhard Richter and uh, Robert Rauschenberg, Andy mm -hmm. Warhol, um, that made a huge impact. That I could see photographs on canvas. Mm -hmm. So I, I, for me, they were. Paintings, of course, but they were actually photographs transferred uh, to canvas, uh, and uh, and that line um, was blurred for me early on. Not that um, mm. um, photography um, is sort of, um, even though these are paintings, uh, and the the magazine page uh, is um, is a photograph printed, and the Warhol is a photograph printed screen printed onto canvas and uh, and uh, a magazine page is offset printed onto paper mm. but it all comes from the lens mm. and uh, so I had different and, and they all speak to me spoke to me on tactile mm. um, 
tactile ways, right? the smell of a magazine, of a newspaper, um, or in a museum, the spatial experience. So I, I've always been interested in, in both of them. Yeah, it's interesting that sense of, sort of tactility in the physical object. So someone called Kit Parsons from Scotland, they asked one of your first interactions with photography was when you discovered a photocopier in a coffee shop and you made a fanzine out of collaged images and lyrics. Do you think without that discovery, the direction you took towards your work would have been very different? Without the photocopier? Mm. Um, well, they, they, they existed. Um, <laughs> You know, it's hard to imagine a world... Uh, Maybe without that interaction, if you hadn't... Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I feel really grateful that I um, overcame the fear of, uh, mechanic, of, of um, mechanical reproduction mm. um, over sort of gesturally handmade art sure. at a very young age. You know, that... that um, um, I, I realized now like the, um, you don't have to draw this, you don't have to paint this for it to be real art. It can actually be a photocopy because it, that photocopy is actually incredibly beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, and that is of course uh, something that I uh, independently invented in my head in a small town in, um, as a teenager, um, cut off from like knowing what was going on in the Xerox underground in the United States mm. or in other places in Europe. Um, but it's um, interesting. There was like a simultaneity um, that, and it's interesting how culture seems to transport what's yeah. going on without even well, wires or, mm. or uh, like it actually connecting, you know, like, but, but people... It's osmosis again. Osmosis, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to go for some more questions from some of your friends and people who know you. So Hans Ulrich Oberst asked a question, and he asked me to talk about your unbuilt road projects, so unrealized projects that are too big to be realized, utopias projects too big to be realized, um, or too small he to be realized. Asks that. He always He <laughs> loves this question. Um, so he said that Doris Lessing told him we should ask about projects we did not dare to do. And I guess maybe less about projects that, you know, you've... I'm interested in both projects that you haven't done because you felt they couldn't be realized, but also projects that you've tried and you, f you perceive as failures. So I'm kind of springboarding off hands already there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> as one should. <laughs> Um, um, I mean, there's one thing that I um, that I that is on my to-do list, um, which is uh, a book called Conversations with Doctors, um, <laughs> because I observed that I uh, love having uh, conversations with. Uh, um, um, doctors about, and not from a hypochondriac point of view, mm -hmm. sort of like picking their brains about how can I live longer or better, but um, from, because in, in school I was initially quite good in science and I've always had a soft spot for science even though later uh, I completely failed in the subjects in school, but, uh, but there is a basic understanding of, for example, what osmosis is and, mm -hmm. and um, and how the body 
work somehow also I've, I've for example always not always but since I was um, 14 um, um, I took an active interest in AIDS uh, uh, from a scientific point of view even before I was gay because I was reading the science pages um, in the Frankfurter Allgemeine, always scanning for astronomy articles, because mm. I was super you obsessed with astronomy. <laughs> and then I noticed from 1982 like, um, uh, that there was a mysterious uh, disease um, um, that had people from Haiti and homosexuals caught. Mm. And it somehow caught my imagination, this, this thing, and I, I, I read everything about AIDS as a teenager, and then I realized, like, I mean, this is, uh, um, like, completely, like, endangering me, and, and uh, uh, but that was, this, that, that was, so it, it, it was the science that interested me first, um, and, and is, then the... Is that still how you approach it in your work? So if you're making work that deals with AIDS or HIV, is it still from that interest in it as a something scientific or is it more you mentioned the kind of the sense of a personal threat that you know I think gay men feel which way is it that you approach it is it the kind of personal way or I mean it's it's um I mean I um it, it impacted my life uh, from the, um the first day of experiencing uh, having um sex um but of course then um it did um um, like impact my life because my um, boyfriend Jochen Klein uh, suddenly died of it um, mm. at a time when um, it theoretically therapy was possible but um, he found out too late um, and uh, and then um, I uh, found out I'm myself um, HIV positive um, but um, I never made that uh, um, active subject in my work because um, I, you know, people are so scared of AIDS. Yeah. They think that everything in the work is then foreshadowing, foreshadowing yeah. this. No, but you know, when I was 16, um, I was um, having sleepless nights because I had um, um, had sex with a guy mm. and. Uh, and um, thinking I'm dying because I had a swollen gland and yeah. of course it was just hypochondriacism but so then I mean AIDS always was in my life uh, as a since I was an adult being um, and so um, now I'm um, you know it doesn't it, it, it has featured in my work in the way that it is that I'm aware that um, the fragility of mm. life and that, um, that uh, of course, um, you know, in, on the, in the ID did an AIDS issue in '91, and uh, and there was a brilliant double page um, that Simon Foxton did. Um, mm. is, it said, "We haven't stopped dancing yet." <laughs> you know, in those days, '91, people were just dying, dying it, yeah. no? and of course, people were clubbing as well. No, mm. like, um, um, and uh, I mean, I'm grateful, and I mean, more than grateful that uh, science and, uh, and uh, chemistry mm. has allowed these uh, medic medicines to, uh, medication to exist. Um, and has that sparked the doctor's project idea in your head? No, again, like it's, it, uh, that interestingly is, is, uh, is more the scientific interest. And uh, so I wanted, I, I realized that I can have interesting conversations with doctors and they realize that I know a little bit more 
um, and so I can keep a conversation going. My mum's uh, a doctor, really? you can put her in it. <laughs> She'd be very happy to talk to you. <laughs> you mentioned the word fragility just then, and, and Jörg van Benekom, uh, founder of Fantastic Man, who you work with a lot, um, and you've done an interesting project with recently, asked a question where he said, when speaking about your work, vulnerability and fragility are often mentioned. What does being vulnerable mean to you? Which I thought was a lovely question. Mm. Um... A bit like therapy, this, isn't it? Yes, I know. <laughs> I'll charge you Just up. Just with a bit of light blast on your face. Intense therapy. Intense therapy. Um, so, yeah, what does vulnerability mean to you? Um, I mean, it's something that I've been uh, in aware of uh, from an early age, and, and as a. Uh, um, that. Uh, and it's. And to experience that that is uh, what we all are, mm. uh, and 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 those who don't acknowledge it and fight it, um, you know, who maybe at first appear stronger, mm. um, um, are actually weaker. Mm. And and I was uh, very touched by uh, um, a shaker. Uh, group of Quakers um, um, in, in Maine, um, where I had an artist residency in 96, and this uh, 90 years old sister Ruth uh, got up in, um, in a meeting and somehow said a sentence, uh, for when I'm weak, I'm strong. Mm-hmm. And, and I made that a title of a book, um, mm-hmm. um, because that, that opposite, that, that, um, that I found so true, no? mm-hmm. that people um, people fight their vulnerability. Um, you know, you make yourself um, so much more. Well, um, sorry, I'm not saying you should. Of course, you should be weak. You know, of course. Mm. I mean, you should look after yourself. You should try and control um, control your life as much as you can. But at the same time, you have to know when to stop. Mm. And that interplay of accepting um, fragility and vulnerability, whilst at the same time, of course, not giving in and saying the world is pointless and mm. and I'm uh, uh, getting out of here. No? Mm. You know, there's um, that duality. That's duality, yeah. No? Yeah. and uh, um, of course, I'm ambitious. No? I'm not denying uh, that I want to um, achieve things. Uh, and, uh, but, um, yeah, I'm saying mm. the same thing. It's, um, it's a question that actually relates this idea of sort of being two things at once. So Charles Asbury, who's you know, a collector and gallerist, he, he's asked a question that relates to your friendship and collaboration with German artist um, Isa Genken. Gensken. Uh, Gensken. <laughs> I'm so bad at pronouncing names. I do love her work. Um, if her alter ego is the rose, what's yours? Mm. A nice one. Um, um, but um, hmm. I, I wanted to say Concord, uh, <laughs> uh, but, that, but you certainly think a lot of yourself. 
know. No, I don't know because Charles owns the work, Concord, yes. and uh, but but um, uh, obviously I knew it's wrong to say that as in a supersonic, uh, mm. um, supersonic uh, jet, uh, um, but uh, more in the terms of the collaboration idea. Um, 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 I mean, since this is therapy, <laughs> that's just a word that came out, concord, you know, like, like to, together, togetherness, uh, um, two countries, for example, in this case, who collaborated on an ambitious project. Um, um, and Well, my alter ego as a, uh, since teenage days was called fragile or fragile mm -hmm. um, you know the the, uh, the fantasy that that was my artist's name as a dreamed musician which then didn't materialize but it was always like this this uh, so uh, I identified with this word um, you can be concord don't worry oh I don't <laughs> want to be concord <laughs> But for some reason, no. But just came to mind. Yes, it is incredibly beautiful, and 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 it's somehow it's it's funny. Maybe it's yeah. It's twenty years next month that I published the book and took those pictures. No, like Easter Easter ninety seven was the main time. So it's on the mind. Lutz actually asked a question. Lutz Hill, who you asked, who you talked about before, and he talked about how you know you spent your teens together dreaming about living in England, and it was the ultimate goal. And when you were both living there, it felt like the most amazing place in the world. And people say that reality is never good as what you imagine, but in in your case, London really was perfect. And he said, with all the recent changes, how do you see it now um, from a human standpoint as well as creatively? And he said that he feels like the current situation will maybe make creativity explode again, as always when times are hard. But, but what do you think about that? Mm. Um. I mean, I, I, when I look at London, uh, I, of course, see 30 years of um, experiences. And that street mm. corner um, is many different years when I look at that screen corner or at this sub uh, underground station or mm. um, um, but if I came to London now um, I don't know if if I would feel as welcome yeah. and um, and if that is still the place where um, um, you know that is so that is offering the space mm. for imagination as uh, um, uh, without money Mm. Um, as it did thirty years yeah. ago, twenty-five years ago, and uh, um, and of course the thing is, yes, London is always bigger than, I mean, almost like than anything because it is like an organism that is uh, made of um, so many diverse people. Mm. Uh, it's kind of uh, is, well, I wanted to say it's unrepressible, irrepressible. Mm. Is that the word? Mm. Um, but that is not true. You know, we had a panel discussion at Tate Modern on Saturday about the loss of free space mm. um, and the privatization of uh, cities. And uh, and uh, there was a consensus uh, um, around, um, and which but Anna Minton particularly pointed out, that it is a, 
um, Anglo-American neoliberal drive that mm. has pushed uh, English and American cities, in London in particular, mm. more towards like um, a complete privatization of everything. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so um, it's not all good in London now. No? Mm. It is a real problem. Um, um, it is, um, um, and it's, it's squeezing out um, people and expression and ultimately diversity. You know? mm. and, um, and, uh, and it is hard um, to change, but I don't know why, um, and that's where one can get involved. You know? Like when the next time you hear that social housing is being uh, earmarked to be demolished in your neighborhood, uh, to make room for another luxury housing project, you know, you can go to your councillor and you can go to your um, local MP mm -hmm. and say something. And, and it's important to do that. Yeah. And uh, so, but a man who is tired of London is tired it's of tired London. Of <laughs> <laughs> so I still love it. Um, and uh, it's a great moment to be here now for mm. me, you know, like I'm uh, having a... A good time. Yes, like this, it's a special moment to, with the exhibition on cool. and... Uh, I have a question from a former mayor of London, from Boris Johnson, who's the UK Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth really? Affairs. He's asked, in exhibiting your work, has it been an advantage or disadvantage that English has increasingly become the language of global business? How would you encourage the revitalization of foreign languages, including German, French, Italian, and Spanish, that have lapsed in the last 44 years in the UK? How would you think? How would you encourage the revitalization of foreign languages, including German, French, Italian, blah, 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 that have so lapsed in the last 44 years in the UK? Um, I think, yeah, I think um, native English speakers are at a loss uh, that they, which they don't notice because you know, like the whole world seemingly speaks English. Yeah. Um, of course, that we all speak it with uh, uh, terrible accents or make terrible mistakes is kind of <laughs> the world's revenge <laughs> for, <laughs> on the English. That you know, that like you have to listen to all these butchered, butchered uh, versions of your mother's tongue. Um, but uh, uh, but. The problem is for um, native English speakers is that uh, you go abroad and um, you find it much harder to speak, to pick up uh, foreign languages because people want to speak to you in English or they, mm. they can speak to you in English. Yeah. And, but what you get from them, for example, in the case of uh, Berlin, where there are vast numbers of native English speakers, um, they um, only get half the picture. Mm. Because the Germans they talk to um, can often only express themselves in a limited way, mm -hmm. so they don't get the full range of uh, the thought and and uh, humor and nuance. And mm. and Germans do have a great <laughs> sense of humor, contrary to uh, to uh, prejudice. Um, and um, and um, and if you can't read. The newspapers. If you're not part of re the, the nuance, the culture, uh, the, mm. the, the the yeah, the culture of the language, um, you're missing a lot. And um, and I think um, that 
yeah, that learning language is, I mean, for me was, of course, a huge eye-opener, no? and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm happy that I don't only speak uh, English, but I have a French perspective on language So as people well. have to make the effort to learn? Well, you have to, yeah. yes. You should. I yeah. mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, everybody else uh, learns English plus mm -hmm. other languages, um, and only the English don't learn yeah. another language, uh, or Americans. No? I mean, mm -hmm. it's like... like Imagine what that does to your brain, to mm. the synapses, you know, like in, in, in other people who are bilingual speak two or three languages, there's connections for the same mm. thing, you know, a rivet over there is an öse in German, and there's two connections, like that is a different, like a movability. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, and, and in, if you're only speaking one language, um, limited. It, it's limited, yeah. you know, yeah. like, like um, and there's a play of words, a sound, um, it's beautiful to yeah. speak. And That's a good answer. Um, someone asked, someone from Switzerland, Stefan, asked a question, do subcultures still exist? Um, I mean, of course they do exist, and uh, um, because... Um, Yes, they do exist. Um, it's a question of um, how they are reported um, and how they are defined. Uh, um, and uh, I, uh, again, on this panel, um, um, yes, on, on Saturday, uh, Dan Hancock's uh, um, spoke about the penalization, the shutdown, the police criminalization of the. Uh, London grime scene, mm. which is being celebrated by people in the government, even as sort of, uh, you know, again showing great British art mm. um, music. Um, but in fact, uh, the actual clubs where um, black artists are performing mm. um, are being have to fill in a form, um, a form six nine six, I think it's called, uh, mm. where they. Um, basically have to fill in questions uh, that allow the police to racially um, profile the event about to happen. Mm. And then if they deem it uh, dangerous or risky, they can shut it down. Yeah. And so a lot of um, um, venues are not playing reggae, mm. are not playing grime, um, because um, they won't get the license for that evening. Or, uh, and... Um, and that is, um, I mean, that is subculture, obviously. Yeah, but it's no? being like, pushed around. And, uh, um, I mean, not, sorry, that is not subculture. That is the repression of subculture. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, like, um, there's no... I mean, it's funny that... What's his name? It was Stefan from so Switzerland. Stefan uh, asked uh, this question, no? because, I mean... Of course, there are. I mean, mm. how can there not be subcultures? Because uh, um, there's one the sub is under no, mm. an under category of the culture, which mm. is of course questionable what that is. Um, but um, but it's more the the, uh, the impetus behind this question is um, a perceived powerlessness, maybe of it today's be, yeah. generation. Yeah, I think so. Um, and. Um, and a perceived uh, total atomization, mm. no? like we're all only individuals and there's no um, cohesion in 
in subcultures. Um, um, and yes, so your feeling is real, um, but um, you can do something about it. No, you can meet, you know, and people right. have to meet in, in real life. So it goes back to what you were saying before about conversation, doesn't it, rather than just posting things online. It's about meeting people and talking to people. Yes. Yeah. I have a question. It relates actually to subculture because it's kind of related to your own youth and the things that matter to you. So Charlie Porter, the writer, has asked, what was the first nightclub that mattered to you? Can you describe it? Can you see the links between that club and the parties you enjoy today? And while Wolfgang's answering that, can we have the fan on? Because it's so hot. Really? I'm fine. Are you okay? Yeah. Oh my God, I feel like I'm going to like... You're going to have to keep going on your own in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Charlie asked about the first nightclub that mattered to you. Um, I mean, the first gay nightclub I went to um, was Manhattan in Brighton uh, mm. when I was 15. Uh, you know, back in those days, one could go to clubs um, as a teenager. And... Uh, and uh, um, I mean, all I remember really was that the DJ was in actually the DJ desk was a piano, a grand piano. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was pretty <laughs> fabulous. Very chic. But uh, but the club that really um, was the first one that um, that um, excited me was uh, called Relax in Dusseldorf, mm. and uh, and uh, they played house music before I knew it, like in '86. Mm. Um, like in uh, um, and um, and then a club called Front in Hamburg with a DJ Klaus Stockhausen, um, and he he again he played Acid House before it was actually sort of um, known mm. uh, to me as that. No, like like um, um, so Relax and Front. Uh, they were both small um, with good sound systems and um, and. Uh, um, and a sort of mixed, gay, straight, anything goes mm. attitude, which, uh, um, yeah, which I think is the best. And and and, and it, it, but it wanted something. It was extreme about music. It mm. was it was uh, uh, interested in excellence, um, in sound, in, in in providing a good quality to people and. Mm. Uh, that is often missing in um, in clubs in London, totally, for example. Yeah, yeah. There's no generosity. No. And is, Terry Jones, the founder of ID, also asked a question that kind of is similar, where he said, I have fond memories of your big smile in Florence at the ID Now exhibition in January 1992, and you were dancing to Thomas Feldman, a Thomas Feldman mix. If you were to choose five dance tracks, one for each decade, 80s till now, who are the DJs and what are their mixes and where are you dancing? Well, <laughs> it's a big is question. It five decades? 80s, 90s, noughties? This. Yeah. Well, no, no, the first part of the noughties and the second part of the noughties. Ah. Yeah. Um, so, like, four. I mean, like the Francois K remix of the Petra Boys uh, mm. song Rent. Mm. It's incredible. <laughs> um, the the 2000s, uh, the Hacker remix of Air's uh, Don't Be Light happens to be the soundtrack of my video mm. of the, the moving lights called Light's Body. Um, 
straight out. And 90s? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, Miss, Miss Kittens uh, you know, and The Hacker, it's not a remix, but their album, um, um, the first album, it's called. Hmm? Mm. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> well, it's shocking. Huh? Like you, you don't even know them. No. Really? No, I'm I mean, ignorant. <laughs> but really, you should uh, um, check out 2001. I have a very limited, Kitten very and the bad hacker. music knowledge. Stock Exchange Woman. Okay. An amazing song. Um, and uh, um. oh, it's so terrible. No? Like every time when I get asked, what, listen, what music do you yeah. listen to? I go blank. <laughs> well, <laughs> you gave me some good ones. Yes. That's okay. And Maureen Paley has asked, what's your most favorite place in the world? Apart from right here, obviously. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's, a, um, there's a photograph, uh, which is actually in the Tate Modern exhibition, uh, uh, and it's entitled, uh, The Most Beautiful Space, uh, Place I've Ever Been. Yeah. Um, and, um, and it is uh, on the um, um, Cape Verde Islands, um, the island of uh, Santo Antao, mm. and there's a crater, um, and in the in the base of the crater mm. is super fertile land, and even though the other island, Cape Verde Islands are really dry, because it's a crater and there are trees on the rim of the crater um, that harvest um, humidity from the clouds. Mm. Um, this is like this incredibly fertile green um, land, um, uh, agricultural land, and uh, I just thought it was so like completely uh, out of this world. Mm. Uh, descending into the crater, which was in clouds, he couldn't see anything. Mm. It was just fog, mm. and then as he descended, there was suddenly like this uh, um, um, archaic agricultural landscape mm. um, unfolding. And what, this is actually one of my own questions, so this, I, I lied when I said I'd just ask one, but sometimes when you're in a situation like that, or say you're in a nightclub and you're so happy, how do you get the balance right between just living the experience and f documenting it? Because you must have to interrupt your own pleasure sometimes to have to stop and take a picture. So I just drifted for one second. <laughs> I didn't listen. Am I boring you? How dare you? <laughs> no, I was still a bit disturbed by not being able to say uh, like like more <laughs> specific <Rude>. music. <laughs> um, no, my question was though. Sometimes if you're having a really nice time, nice. No. If you're no, if you're having a really good time, so say you're looking at something that you find absolutely beautiful, you're in an amazing place, or you're in a club and you're having the most amazing time. How do you get the balance right between? just living in that experience and enjoying it and documenting it? Because to stop and take a photograph, you have to sort of interrupt your own pleasure. Mm, no? Not really. I mean, it's um, uh, my approach to photography is that I uh, <laughs> like to um, master it, know exactly what it does, or mm. kind of be close to knowing what it does, uh, so that, um, that I... Um, live my life through my eyes I don't I'm not a walking camera I'm actually thinking about the real three-dimensional world mm. um, but sometimes when I recognize something uh, as of interest or as of somehow a formal 
cultural content meaning, mm. um, I take the camera and briefly put it between my eyes and the subject mm. and take a picture of it. Um, but that is kind of um, only a brief in, interruption, like I just put it in between. Mm. Um, so it's not um, really interrupting Sure. the thought process or the process of enjoyment um, mm. um, when I travel or um, or you know like like go like yesterday I had this sort of high alert walk through London <laughs> uh, which I know so well but sometimes I have these moments where I see everything seemingly afresh, afresh yeah. and then um, I just briefly, I mean, that's the incredible thing about photography is yeah. that that, um, that it has, like, I have 30 years of visual uh, education and awareness mm -hmm. at the uh, tip, at the uh, tip of a what, of my finger, of, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, but in that second, it's all um, active. Mm. Um, you know, when you're painting, you, you have to, like, layer that, mm. layer it, layer it, uh, um, and... Uh, um, but uh, the incredible thing about photography is, is that it does uh, um, make a usable picture mm. in most cases and, and sometimes the mind is even um, faster, the subconscious is faster yeah. than the conscious mind. And, uh, and, um, but what was the question? Oh, yeah, no, you it interrupts it, it though, yeah. Yeah. Um, Someone asked, um, so Mikhail Seleski from Montreal, as I wanted to know if you ever had a difficult time making an image or picking up your camera, and if so, what was the experience and did you move on? I know you've talked about this a bit in the past, but I think it's an interesting question if it's happened. How, like, has, does that happen often where you, you can't document something almost? Um, I mean, maybe not fully answering the question, but, but uh, um, you know, there is um, um, a question about morality of photography, you know, like mm. can a picture be, st should one steal a picture, what can picture can you take? Mm. And I sometimes, I work, when I worked on the project Neue Welt, mm. like New World, roughly like, like it started the end of the 2000s, yeah. 2007, 8, 9, and then intensified into like a, um, a intense two, three years of traveling, making short trips around the world uh, to different uh, locations. Um, and I realize now there are situations where you have a responsibility mm. a cultural responsibility to to get the picture to, mm. to um, because if you don't um, it will disappear mm. like, like 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 it's uh, um, it's a story untold um, which one could say who cares but of course uh, um, um, I mean sometimes yeah not every photograph is a comfortable one, mm. and uh, and uh, it's embarrassing. Uh, I find photographing often embarrassing. You know, like, Why do you say that? Um, because you're revealing your interest. Um, you know, you're, 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 um, sometimes when it is strangers, uh, you know, like you have to negotiate your interest with mm. your intrusion and your not wanting to intrude uh, mm. um, or um, but that embarrassment to overcome that embarrassment uh, 
uh, you have to feel a certain sense of urgency that you need sure. this picture, that you want to talk about this, and, and that um, is important. Important. Someone's asked a similar question, Whitney Harrison from London, which said, you're, although you're considered an autobiographical artist, your work is sometimes known as to be unusually personal. Has there been a point where you've not wanted to share something you've documented because your personal connection to it was too strong? Um, I mean, I don't see myself as an autobiographical yeah. artist at all. No? Like, uh, um, um, of course, taken together all my work over 30 years, of course, paints a picture of a life lived. But, um, um, you know, all the, the work um, with or without camera that, uh, um, you know, they, they, I think for me the question is can I take a picture, can I make a picture um, of this or with this? Mm. And um, it's not, um, I want to tell what food I've eaten. Mm. Or I don't want to say these are my friends. You know, mm. When I photograph friends, I show them as humans. Mm. And I photograph them because their presence and their access and, um, and their openness uh, to me allowed me to see, uh, um, to grasp a sense of humanity mm. that flickers up briefly and I um, and they allow me to photograph that. Mm. But when I see that, I see humanity, um, a, a universal quality in the specific mm. um, person. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, but I'm not saying this is my friend. You know, like, mm. these are my cool friends. No? Like, like cynical critics have sometimes written mm. that, oh, like he's showing his super cool lifestyle. Uh, no, no, like, um, it's just when I uh, was 25, uh, 25 years old happened to be most in my uh, accessible to me, and so mm -hmm. I recognized uh, their fragility or their humanity or their dignity mm -hmm. um, in them, and um, and um, so I'm. Um, I really um, I would feel it's so immodest. Mm -hmm to constantly talk about what I'm doing. Mm. Um, you know, like, so, so autobiography is, of course, not immodest. Ne? Autobiographies mm. are also generous because they um, take um, serious, like, a duty to tell history, mm. you know, like how we lived and... and uh, um, but... Um, there and there's lots of things, of course, that are too personal. No, like I don't. Yeah, like that's the thing. Like I don't want to reveal, because um, I don't want to necessarily talk about my private life. You know, like like that, for example, that bum in the Tate exhibition. You know, mm. that it it doesn't matter who that is. Mm. It's uh, potentially anybody. But if you only approach it um, as a general idea it is lacking the personal intensity or that embarrassment or that urgency. You know? and, and that is what is perceived as autobiographical. Mm. But I want to actually just get that feeling in the viewer mm. um, so that they feel it could be theirs. Mm. That's interesting. So you don't find... Do you find ever that people feel... They presume they know you better than they 
than they do or they presume that they understand your personality and your life because they see your work as, as being a documentary of all of your life? Um, I mean, yes, you can pick out, of course, preferences and, and places, etc. Um, no, but I think what is the particular um, quality or what I realize also now in seeing the reactions to the show, um, for example, um, or in general, like there is a, I feel there's a surge in response to my work in recent years and of a new generation, younger mm -hmm. generation, there's some connection there and, and that has to do with them recognizing themselves. I see. You know, like I, when I recognized myself in the music I loved, mm. you know, I didn't love them because I um, saw Bernard Sumner sing this or mm. Mark Almond sing that, uh, you know, artists somehow translate something particular into something that then resonates with others and they can recognize themselves and that gives a sense of I'm not alone mm. um, and that is uh, ultimately you know what I'm um, most afraid of is um, you know to be alone in this world and um, and the solidarity of people you know even if it like shines up occasionally here and there um, is what lights up mm. an otherwise hostile nature mm. you know, mm. because the world is not a nice benign place no. and, uh, and it's only um, friends um, and warmth that um, oh now I'm getting too um, <laughs> um, no no it's interesting <laughs> I'm going to ask another question from Simon Baker, the curator at the tape, um, because it relates, actually, you talked about some of the pictures you've taken of your friends, and he's asked, how much agency do your subjects have in their portraits, especially those photographed repeatedly? Can you think of these works as collaborations? Mm. Uh, yes, I mean, for example, um, with Isa Genskin, the... Um, German sculptor um, she actually did ask me uh, in 93 to collaborate on a series of portraits of her um, and, and that was that is actually a work even though it's entirely photographed and directed by me mm. um, she was the um, initiating director uh, by asking me to do this and choosing the location which was the Cologne Cathedral mm. and calling this uh, group of pictures Atelier. Mm. So she was uh, modestly declaring <laughs> the, <laughs> the huge cathedral her studio. Yes. Um, and, um, and we've um, taken pictures together um, ever since um, and that is uh, uh, I mean the others I authored, I own uh, she took some of me. Um, she actually sometimes appropriates my pictures and just puts them in collages. Yeah. Or, um, and, uh, um, and I mean, of course, anybody that, that um, sits, you know, when, when, when they are part, when they are part of a stage scenario, like Philip Marshall uh, pissing on a chair mm. in 97. You know, that is like he enacts something. He is a collaborator in that way, yes. Um, um, mm. Even though 
just like a film director, it is it is this person's film. No? It is mm. kind of I ask him to do this. To do uh, but sometimes people bring things to um, pictures that I could never have brought, mm. um, and, and and I'm just I'm very grateful to, you know, like like I mean, there are many contributing factors, and even though I design, I. I uh, lay out my exhibitions, I make my books, I, uh, I um, decide a lot, but also um, I would only be half the, the, the mile, <laughs> this, yeah. like I would have only gotten half as far if it wasn't for the great advice from mm. people or collaborators, help, um, um, yeah, that is, and, and to listen, no? like I, like I, I think I do. I do seek out um, bad criticism. I want to hear the bad news. You know, like I don't like that's the worst thing when when people only want to hear the good mm. news. You know? Like I always am much more interested in yeah, what what could be a problem. Has anyone ever written something as a criticism that you've just talked thought was totally wrong? Oh yes, <laughs> all of it. <laughs> Um, I mean, no, 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 no. There, there was like uh, it was so ridiculous. Like Sarah Kent uh, of Time Out, she uh, when I was nominated for the Turner Prize, and she was uh, um, uh, describing like let's saying like this shallow um, um, guy and shuffling around his friends on the London Tube, mm -hmm. and and everything is seemingly lightweight uh, is lightweight and and you know like I had it was I had just come out of three years of grieving mm. over the loss of my um, love of my life and uh, it was just so fucking ridiculous you mm. know like uh, like the um, and just the willful misreading because the work the installation the Turner Prize yes it was full of life and, and mm. love uh, but I mean you have to you know it had gravitas this was a mm. life lived mm. and to neglect and to just say this is uh, um, and the yeah I mean um, that does hurt no? like, course, um, yeah. but fortunately uh, people have really gotten over that and, and I Thank God, never shied away from um, light, like like doing, being, um, yeah, always having a mix of uh, seemingly light subject mm. matter and heavy subject matter. But that's sure. even, yeah, speaking of light-hearted things. We have a light-hearted question from Michael Clark, the dancer and choreographer. He's asked, "Are you aware that I pinched some socks from your house on Fire Island?" No. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you are. <laughs> you need to take great revenge. <laughs> he said they looked like they, they were socks that you'd maybe got on an aeroplane. Ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you can replace them, hopefully. Okay. Um, I've got a question from in from Japan, from Taku Takuya. He said, do you have any young photographers that you like? Um, one that came to... Um, um, mind is Harley Weir. Mm. Why? And Jamie Foxworth. Foxworth. Yeah. Um, but Harley, um, where was this uh, um, long story of masks? Mm. I thought that was pretty incredible. Um, 
and you know um, it's I mean it is hard I mean photography is, is uh, maybe one of the hardest mediums um, I think it's more it's easier to um, to make a decent painting that one can look at mm. than to make uh, really good photographs um, um, even though obviously technically it seems so the opposite mm. um, but um, when somebody stands out you can immediately tell and the incredible thing about photography is you know it is a mechanical medium there's seemingly nothing that touches like the artist's touch mm. uh, um, but you can tell um, you can tell a Jürgen Teller from a mile <laughs> tell, tell. Uh, uh, you know, you can say, oh, that, um, and that is an Araki, and that is a Jürgen Teller, and that's a Cindy Sherman, and uh, and we're all using the same medium. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's fascinating. No? That that um, it um, that is testament to the psychological quality somehow, like mm -hmm. an intangible quality that makes it through the lens. Uh, um, and again, what was the yeah, any young yeah? And so when there is uh, when there is somebody that has a, a, a vision um, that stands out, um, I'm yeah, I'm delighted, and it, it happens really not that often because it is such a difficult medium. Mm. Um, Talking of it being a difficult medium, we've got a question in which I thought was was interesting. It's from Vlad Iorac. I hope I pronounced that right. He's from Romania. And they asked, how do you capture a feeling? Um, um, by the way, young photographer, like, but because uh, I should also mention a contemporary of mine, he's even a bit older, but Jochen Lempert. Mm -hmm. um, I exhibited his work um, Last year at Between Bridges in Berlin, and he's he's well known, uh, um, but he's always young at heart. He has an incredible uh, take on nature and human interaction, interrelation with nature, and um, and um, and his work is super relevant, super fresh, um, even though he's fifty something. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was doing a. Guardian Facebook Live thing at Tate Modern uh, the other week, and and the interviewer had a great interest to bring it always back around to youth culture, and uh, and I was saying yes, and then now let's look at this picture here of uh, Gustav Metzger who died last month at the age of 93. You know he was like a real young spirit all his life, and young people always uh, felt attracted to him, and uh, one has to really think. Um, the whole definition of young and old is uh, is and has really changed. I mm. think. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's a, it's it's a, it's not like you're as old as you feel, like wishy washy stuff like that. <laughs> no, but it's. Uh, I mean, young people feel also. I think like Isa Genskin, no, like mm. she's twenty years older than me, and 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 a lot of uh, artists really respond to her. No? It's a state of mind. How. Uh, um, um, queer, <laughs> how, what angle you look at uh, things. No, it is. That's a good way. Uh, yeah. It's dangerous to fetishize you. But I interrupted the question. How do you capture a feeling? 
I, for a moment, for a while, the Tate exhibition um, was had. A, I had the title "How Does It Feel?" question mark. Mm. Um, now it's just called 2017, um, the number. Um, but uh, how does it feel? It, it just then seemed too um, um, too vague, um, and also as if I can say that. Mm. You know, like like I can only uh, try, and uh, because the moment you know or you think to know, I think you're definitely wrong, mm. um, and um, and um, so you almost you can't capture a feeling. No, you can. <laughs> uh, um, like uh, for example, but it sometimes takes a long time. Uh, I, in 91, I took a picture um, thinking I, w I wanted to take, describe the feeling of the air between my trousers and my skin, my legs, skin. Um, and, and it failed, it didn't transport it. And, uh, and 26 years later, I took a photograph called The Air Between. Yeah. Do you know the one? I do know the one, I think. Yeah? Um, and because it, I show it for the first time at yeah, Tate. Yeah, the Tate show. And it's like okay, this... Good. We're thinking of the same thing. I was really worried I got it wrong. air, you know, like, and you, suddenly you can really grasp, yes, there is this uh, three-dimensional space, this particular warmth of air between the skin and the leg, uh, mm. and the trouser leg, uh, and um, that is a three-dimensional space. But it's of course also a self-awareness, a mm. self uh, like. Uh, Why you, did it take you that can long? only feel it yourself, no? And nobody mm. else knows what it's like. But we probably feel the similar thing, and that's what I try to yeah. communicate. Uh, when I feel that somebody else feels the same way mm. or similar. It, we may call resonate, mm. and that's the ultimate success of a work. Like if, and, mm. and that, if that happens with five percent of the viewers, visitors, um, that's, that's great. Because this relates actually to a question from Nick Knight, which is going to be my last question. And I think you've you've touched on it there. And he said, if you were writing your own obituary, what would you say you had brought to the development of photography? Just a light one. <laughs> Just a frivolous little light question to end on. <laughs> um, I think maybe the yeah the to photography because you know like I see myself um, as an artist working in a fifty thousand years tradition of picture making, mm. but. Um, um, I chosen I found that photography is uh, the medium that almost allows me to do everything I want to say about mm. um, uh, or, or how to ex say things in art, um, and that is testimony to the material, the material, um, um, which to me has always been uh, a miracle and re remains a miracle. Um, you know, it's like incredible mm -hmm. that there is an industrially produced piece of paper and you do something to it, like feed it through, expose it to light or mm -hmm. now put it through uh, printers and it's transformed into an object of incredible charge. Mm -hmm. um, 
and so there's nothing here, it's just a nondescript thing, mm -hmm. then something is done to it and it becomes something of, um, um, yeah, charge is really the word that I use. And, um, and, and that is often completely neglected um, in thinking about photography, that people only think about the image. Mm. Um, and for me, a photograph is an embodied image. Mm. You know, it's not nothing, it is a thing. Mm. And, um, and from day one, when I started to uh, install in the way that I installed, yeah. with, uh, um, people thought it's like a slacker, grunge approach, but in reality, it was actually a minimalist approach. Mm. I wanted to show the object, um, and I consider photographs as extremely flat cubes, <laughs> you know they do very very flat very, <laughs> uh, and uh, and to have brought uh, that to the more to the fore um, that photographs are objects that are things uh, um, um, that they have a body mm. and that connection is actually again that makes and I think there is something to do with the fragility and the beauty they have but also they're constantly endangered mm. and if I have uh, spotlighted that that would be nice if that was in an obituary <laughs> many decades away many decades away Wolfgang thank you so much thank you fantastic <laughs>